Welcome to the Cozy Cozy Podcast. We're here to create comfort along the entrepreneurial journey and really the life journey. Join us for inspiring, dynamic conversations that make the arduous process of venturing out into the unknown feel more doable because we believe in making the impossible possible. We hope you'll join us as we play in the infinite. So pull up a seat, grab a blanket, let's get cozy. Welcome back to the Cozy Cozy Podcast and welcome back to a little series that has been so beautifully co-created in what feels like the most gracefully woven way, the most organically created way with my Advo. If you haven't heard episode one of this Cozy Cozy and My Advo series, it is amazing. You have to go listen. Uh, The founder of My Advo, Esther Tran Lee, and someone in her network named Marlise Kaufman joined me for a conversation around self-advocacy, especially in birth and postpartum. Marlise had an incredibly crazy, two crazy birth experiences that also impacted her postpartum experiences. And I, of course, shared in having a traumatic birth. And so very dynamic conversation and one that Um, I highly encourage people to listen to if you had a trying time only because I felt seen and heard by Marlise. I know she felt seen and heard by me and so many uh, listeners have written in just thanking us for that episode. And so I have linked that in the show notes. But what I love about my Advo, aside from their founder, of course, Esther, who you're going to hear from today, is the fact that they're on a powerful mission that is actually going to make significant differences in people's lives because we are nothing without our health. And that is really such a resounding truth for me this year as I have struggled with secondary infertility and I have struggled with the challenges that are causing the secondary infertility, which is liver challenges, um, hormonal imbalances, uh, mold infections, um, gut dysbiosis, and um, really kind of so many different aspects of, of my health. And you take it for granted. I think back to 2020 through 2022, getting pregnant, leading up to getting pregnant, being pregnant, and through postpartum, and taking a multivitamin and magnesium citrate to help me poop. And drinking water, and just not taking anything else. And back on this really heavy supplement protocol, which I'm going to share more in an upcoming episode on my kind of catch up on my infertility, I've been taking so many supplements that now I'm even like, maybe I need a supplement break. Like it's been a lot. And so having to advocate for myself at the doctor's office and with so many different practitioners, some of whom have been so amazing, including but not limited to an acupuncturist, a biofield tuner, um, a craniosacral therapist, a functional dietitian, uh, like everyone and anyone that's been on my team has been great, but coordinating that care, advocating for myself, and then trying to communicate a lot of the more fringe stuff to my doctor has been such a challenge. And that's why these uh, startups like my Advo are just doing such powerful work. So my Advo is empowering women to advocate for themselves at the doctor. It is a movement. And Esther Tranley, who you're going to hear from today, has such a personal uh, connection to why we need to be advocating for ourselves at the doctors. Today, you're going to hear all about her health journey and everything that she has experienced from adenomyosis, which I may be saying incorrectly, 
but she'll say it correctly in the episode, uh, endometriosis, uh, which she mentions, I don't think she has, uh, fibroids, egg freezing, and so many things in between, gynecological things really. And I just feel for that, gosh, the loneliness that can come on a journey, a health journey, a journey where you don't, where you really have to take matters into your own hands. And her story is very, very compelling. And what she's building is just going to take over the world. I'm so excited for it. So I'm very, very, very honored to do a part two of this My Advil and Cozy Cozy series. And before we get into the interview, just want to give you guys a couple Cozy Cozy updates. So we are officially launched in Echo Market, which for Nip Gloss, our first product to market. And Echo Market is an all natural, like sustainability focused, beautiful store in Woodstock, Vermont. I found this amazing tinted moisturizer there that I love. I got a really cute organic baby clothes outfit for Declan. Jeff got a really cool flannel. My friend got some orgasmic chocolate. I mean, they have it all. They have really cool period care. And with our sustainability focus and the fact that we're women owned um, and also helping to innovate in the perinatal space, it was very much aligned for them. And we're so excited to be featured in Echo Market. We also have a new partnership with Bloom and Rise. Bloom and Rise is a company started by two perinatal mental health experts. Amy is specifically trained in perinatal mental health and Jen also has experience and expertise in infant and childhood mental health, which I love. And so we're actually going to be hearing from them on the podcast soon. But in the meantime, if you purchase one of their breastfeeding boxes, um, Nip Gloss will be featured inside. So we're very, very excited to be uh, aligned with a brand that is having the hard conversations and supporting women because there's also nothing lonelier than dealing with postpartum depression, anxiety, intrusive thoughts, and all of that. So I will link Bloom and Rise in the show notes and Echo Market so you can check both of those out. And we have even more exciting partnerships coming down the line. And so it's gosh, it feels like such a crazy journey this year. And I was trying to figure out like why the last three months felt like H E double hawk H-E double hockey sticks because it's been this experience of chaos and not knowing which way is up or down. My nervous system, like I can tell and even my husband Jeff echoed this for me that I'm definitely subdued now and I am definitely more grounded since December 1st hit. Like it all is well, all is well with my soul, all is well um, with my energy. And at the same time, you can't just turn, it's not like a light switch, right? So my body went from extreme fight or flight for three months to all is well. But I feel like December, December has been and continues to be this bridge month for me to really kind of recollect myself after what those three months were. And I bring the the whole three-month thing because a lot of people only take 12 weeks of postpartum and a lot of, of, of like postpartum parental leave from their job. I needed a good six months, even though I still did a little bit of work starting at like 10 weeks. But I think most people who have had a baby will say that the first 12 weeks are the hardest. You don't, they don't really have a nap schedule. They are figuring out how to eat. You're figuring out how to feed and what, what, you know, what type of feeding you're going to even do, how to figure out sleep, how to exist with no sleep. And what's so beautiful and like, of course, is the fact that I birthed a product. We did pre-sale in August and real sale in September. And it's like, oh, 
I was postpartum with a product. Like that's a thing that actually happened. And it makes total sense because now I've had to learn how to live with an operating company that's selling product on a daily basis. And that is a new experience rather than talking about and uh, gestating a product, which is, you know, like pregnancy. So I'm happy to report that I'm coming out of my post-launch cocoon and chaos and feeling much more calm and grounded and really excited about the new year and products coming through. Um, Kind of a crazy story, but we thought our nipple diaper postpartum uh, absorbent disposable bra would be done by October. And not only is it not done, but we actually just changed development companies. And we are so excited to be working with a company that does all of their engineering in-house moving forward. And that way, we have people that are actually working on it versus a bunch of contracted people, especially overseas. And we are not starting from scratch because we did make really great headway this year. And we have awesome prototypes, but they're just not quite right yet. So excited to announce that we're entering into a new production era with that product and excited about kind of what uh, more can be created there and how much more magnificent it can be. So those are our fun cozy cozy updates. I am grateful for the support on this journey. We have lots of other fun guests coming up in the next several months and I appreciate everyone listening. Uh, It goes without saying but as always please reach out if you have questions about the episode, about the company, you want to get involved, you want to support Esther, you want to support Cozy Cozy. Um, There are all the links and contact info in the show notes so just check there. I put it all there for a reason. So don't hesitate to reach out. And without further ado, our guest today, founder of My Advo, Esther Tran Lee. Esther, welcome to the show. Hi, Garrett. It's nice to talk again. I know. I'm really excited. And if any of the listeners have not listened to our first My Advo and Cozy Cozy collaboration podcast series featuring Marlise, I will link that in the show notes so people can go back. But in case they haven't, I want to open this episode with the question we're asking everyone, which is, who are you before labels and titles or what someone could Google about you? Because we all wear many hats, but I think uh, trying to describe it without our labels is, is more grounding for who you really are. Definitely. Um, well, the what I like to share about who I am is I'm a woman who lives with fibroids and adenomyosis, um, and I'm also an advocate for women. So I really am here as a resource for anyone who's dealing with any chronic female conditions uh, to be able to understand how am I supposed to tackle this? How do I talk to my doctor? How do I pick the right doctor? Um, and so that's what I would really describe myself as, as who am I? At least right now, there's a lot that changes over time, but I feel like that is the identity that I've, I've really um, cherished um, in my adult life. It's I love that you also bring attention to the fact that it changes because who we are in any given moment wow. is is fully uh, available to be just whatever we feel like in that in that present moment, which is really cool. And we have that shared experience of how do we get the support we need from doctors because we we both have a very uh, trying history of, okay. of that right. experience. And really quick before we uh, dive into your journey. Further, you just use the term endomyosis. I've heard of endometriosis. What is endomyosis? 
Yeah. So adenomyosis is actually a different condition than endometriosis. Um, And just to clarify for all any of our listeners, I am not a doctor. I don't have an MD, um, but I was diagnosed with adenomyosis. um, And for short, people like to call it adeno. Um, But I I like to call it a cousin of endometriosis. Endometriosis. Um, but if if you look it up, um, it is a gynecological condition. Um, it does have to do with the endometrial tissue, which is in the lining of your uterus, to grow into the wall of the uterus. So it's the same idea that there's tissue growing where it shouldn't be, but it is not endometriosis. It is a separate condition. Um, however, it is painful. It can it can be just as painful as endometriosis too. Wow. I I love that just starting with that clarity because there's so many aspects of our gynecology, our gynecological journey that we may not know about and that can come up. I know at our age with our considerations of fertility, having kids, not having kids, uh, some people facing early menopause, like there's so many aspects of the journey. And for this weird reason. Uh, and luckily it's changing, but there's this, there's, it feels like a mystery to solve. Right. And I'm sure that that's been a part of your journey. And for me, I had to go through all these resources and there's been so many amazing women who have come on the podcast to be those resources for me, but just learning about pregnancy. It's like, how is this not part of what we're taught as being humans who can, or potentially will give birth to other humans uh, because it's our humanity. I I always say, like, what did I actually learn in sex ed? Like, (laughs) I'm just saying, like, if there was anywhere in my life as probably a high schooler where I would have wanted to understand my body more as a woman, and honestly, for for the males out there to also understand their body more, uh, or our bodies more, it would have been then. And, um, you know, I know there's a lot of conversations right now in schools, et cetera. But I I do think, you know, being able to to teach at a young age to understand your body just does you as a person so much good to even be able to later on approach the healthcare system, right? And understand how does healthcare work? How does my body work? How do I recognize certain things? So yeah. totally hear you. <laughs> Love it. Your both of our passion, I feel like, is coming through. And I kind of want to start with this this moment in your timeline of your first period. I know that sounds weird, but I think it's where this massive journey for us starts. I read something the other day and I, I don't exactly remember where it was, just about how it takes a few years one, when you start your period to even just kind of get into a regular cycle. And it's something that for me, if I think about, okay, I started it at 13 and by 18, I went on birth control. Mm-hmm. What? Wait, what? Like that? that is just the masking of even starting to learn about my womanhood, right. my sexuality, all these things. And so when I look back at starting my period, it was this thing I was embarrassed to have. It was a thing that um, it was like, okay, now you have to have these pads and like, you know, don't talk to your dad about it. Like, it was just this weird, like secret, almost embarrassing, uncomfortable thing. Whereas flash forward to a spiritual teacher I worked with, she had told me the story about her like creating a ceremony for her daughter when she got her first period. I'm like, wow, what a, what a drastic, different, yeah. drastically different experience. So talk to us about, but when it started and then if it was something in your life that was important to you or something you even paid attention to. Absolutely. So, um, 
I will say that in my family, and I, I do feel privileged that way, it was it was not taboo. But what happened after, because my periods were different than what my mother had experienced or my aunt, became a little bit of mystery. So I got my first period right before my 12th birthday. And I remember exactly when it happened because I was at a friend's bar mitzvah, mm. dancing, you know, having fun. And suddenly I just get these crazy cramps, run to the bathroom and basically have my period for the first time. Um, I called my dad up to pick me up and I told him and he was like, great, we'll tell mom. Um, so that was my first experience, which um, looking back felt pretty healthy um, at the time. Fast forward a bit in terms of becoming more regular and I am having pretty hefty periods. Like we're, we're having hefty periods. We are bleeding through pants at school. We are having to wrap our sweaters around. And so the shame I think that I started experiencing was like, wow, my periods are like not controllable. <laughs> like I, I don't know when they're starting. I don't know when they're stopping. I was regular, but the flow was just something that I like didn't really know what to do about. And I tried to learn how to wear tampons. And so I was later on diagnosed in my 20s. So like 10 years later, with what they call a vaginal septum and eventually what they what we learned what i learned later a complete septum and so just uh to explain to people who probably have no idea what a septum is because truthfully when i was told i had one i also had no idea what it was yeah. um it's a congenital condition so that means i was born with it where basically when my vagina and uterus formed as a fetus the tissue actually did not fully form properly and separate. So basically left me with tissue dividing my vagina, my cervix and my uterus. Wow. Um, and I had, so what they call a complete septum, but also a vertical one. Um, you can also be born with a horizontal one, which most women notice a little bit girls, I would say notice earlier because it makes actually bleeding through your period, very difficult. That but is. in this case, it was a vertical one. So and we are getting very TMI here, but basically I'm trying to put tampons in and I'm still bleeding through the other side. <laughs> like, oh, wow. and I'm leaking. I'm like, what is happening? Like, and my, my mother, my, my aunt, um, I have a younger sister. She was too young at the time. Like no one knew, like this was not something that was common knowledge. And so it was just this, this thing where like, I guess, I guess it's pads for me. Like, I guess that's what we're dealing with through, through high school, through everything. So oh um, that's my experience, getting my period, but also managing my period as a high schooler um, later on. And I also decided to go on birth control um, at 17 um, as a freshman in college um, for several reasons. I, I was sexually active at the time. And I also have a history. We have a history of really bad acne. And so that was a really great way for me to be able to treat that. So I got on birth control and that did regulate my periods. Um, they made them shorter. Um, it made them less painful. Um, and I stayed on it for over 10 years on the same. I was um, on the combination, a combo pill um, called orthotricycline. So. Wow. What a journey. And it's like, even just hearing you say like, that birth control was a nice solution for your acne. Like I just feel for you in the sense of like, you finally had a problem that you could solve because it sounds like, like most women take for, I mean, we all hate, I'd say we all kind of hate our period. Like it's annoying. 
it messes with your hormones, it could be really painful. And to add this layer of, of several confounding factors making yours more challenging, it really does sound like the, the only analogy I have for my life personally is the management of my asthma was really hard, like finding the right drugs, not getting hospitalized, like talking to different doctors. And that started as early as for me, like fifth grade when I was like, re- well, I was hospitalized earlier, but it becomes this thing that's in your life that is not this easy to solve problem. No. And I would even argue too, that it was probably harder for you at the cultural zeitgeist that was what, 15 years ago. 20 years ago. Exactly. It was, um, you know, when I think about it, it's also a time when everything was minimized and honestly, things are still minimized. Like we we've come a long way, but there's still a lot of like, you know, well, everyone gets their periods, you know, if it's a painful period, like you, you deal through it. And I, I did grow up with that mentality. So, Mm -hmm. um, and even, you know, when it came to getting on the pill, um, I, I definitely wasn't, educated on are there other pills what my side effects may be I was lucky that I did not I mean at 17 at the time that I took it get any um side effects that I didn't that were you know unwanted those came later (laughs) um but I thought it was really you know if I look back on it my family didn't necessarily shame me into getting my period, but I would say my society definitely did. It was something that was hidden. It was something embarrassing. It was something that was like annoying to have to go deal with in the middle of class, you know, like yeah. something that was always needed to be hidden away. But if it became something that you may feel wasn't really like what is normal, right? Because we don't yeah. talk about it. We don't then, so like, what is, is a heavy flow normal? is leaking through your tampons 30 minutes after normal. It wasn't something I even could have a reference point about at the time. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's wild and we're going to get further into your journey, but it's just also reminding me of this whole notion of, um, there's so many different life coaches that say, I'm sure Tony Robbins has said it. I'm thinking of John D. Martini at the moment, but that our wounds become our wisdom, right? Like this was something highlighted in your life at such an early age. And here you are, which we'll get into more in a moment, building something to help others. And I think that the experience of being in society now and the cultural conversation around periods for me is always enlightening because I continue to be seeing message, see messaging around like, take a day off if it's your period or do more gentle workouts. And I think back to like 18 year old me was like, oh, my period's here today. Like I'm going to go to a 90 minute spin class. Like it's just this annoying thing I'm going to push through. No um, awareness around listening to my body or any of that, which is a whole other conversation. But one of the questions I wanted to ask, again, paralleling this with my own asthma journey is that I was able and so lucky to see my mom raise a little bit of hell. Like she would push back on some nurses. We'd get a different doctor on rotation if I was admitted for asthma. And she'd be like, nope, sorry, that's not what Dr. So-and-so said. Can we talk to someone else? Or like, can you follow up with it? Like she was very adamant about tracking what was going on, paying attention to my symptoms, listening to her gut, and then speaking her mind. And so Mm -hmm. I think I show up sometimes to doctor's offices being a little bit more of a fiery, maybe from their perspective, energy, because I'm not going to settle. Did you have a parent or a teacher or anyone in your life that you think kind of inspired your level of self-advocacy? Or do you think this was something you had to grow into? I love this question. Um, Short answer is yes. My mother 
um, is a very outspoken, opinionated woman. Um, she is, I'm half French, half Vietnamese. Um, she is French and yes, absolutely. Basically all of the, the fire that comes with that, um, very much that was how I saw her. That's how she raised us. It's how I saw her interact with other people. Um, and you know, for me, obviously because we didn't understand from a period sense, but we also didn't think it was abnormal, right? Again, we don't have a reference point. I didn't see a gynecologist until I was on my own, right, um, in college. Uh However, my acne, for instance, she had very traumatic acne, like acne that really um, she had to like get procedures for, et cetera. So for her, that you know, I would say trauma that she went through as a child. She really didn't want me to go through. And I saw her probably in that light with our dermatologists. Yeah. Um, she also was very adamant about, she knew the birth control because they were already trying to put me on birth control early on, um, would be a solution. For her, it wasn't even about not being sexually active or not. She was just like, I had a bad experience with birth control. Like I grew um cysts at the time like I felt unwell so she was like I know that the birth control has changed since you know the 80s but I in her mind she was like I don't want that to be the solution right now right she's in her mind it was like I was still um a developing teenager and that was something that for her that would maybe be a decision that I would take on later on on my own which I really respect her for because that was a pushback right for some of the dermatologists etc it was like what are other options that we can do here? Um, I mean, the other options were a lot of other <laughs> drugs and medications, which yeah. is, but, you know, I think she was also very aware, like if something wasn't working, like she's like, great, let's go back to a dermatologist and let's talk about it. Um, and the reason I love your question so much is because at my Advo, we are really thinking about um what is this mindset of advocacy? It's not just, you know, the tools to be able to advocate for yourself, which are things that we're working on, but it's also how do you teach a mindset of advocacy? And I think that you said it so well when oftentimes, which is not all the time, when women see other women in their lives in positions of authority, like their mothers, right? Or that they respect acting in a certain way, they want to mirror that. They see it as like, okay, this may be something that like I can take on or as a young girl, you start to learn, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And so I do think that's something that like, if that's not something you've been exposed to in your environment, because oftentimes it's it's not. Like it's only really recently, you know, I think about, um, you know, the, not just the Me Too movement, but even right now what we're going through around women having, being this economic powerhouse, right? Taylor Swift, Beyonce, like all of this movement, the Barbie movie, that we didn't grow up with that. Like we didn't grow up with the this this branding, I would say, or this um, inspiration around women the same way. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I do think that, how do you train a mindset of advocacy? How do you train a mindset of, you know, when you go to the doctor, you feel somewhat entitled, right? And you feel somewhat like I want answers and I have, I'm coming with a certain level of education about something. So that's something that we really think about um, at my Advo. Well, let's jump to my Advo. So you mentioned in your, you know, who are you question, you're someone living with fibroids. And I want to know when you discovered that you had fibroids and how that informed 
this business now that you're building called Myadvo? Absolutely. Um, so Myadvo, at its essence, brings together women with chronic female conditions, endometriosis, fibroids, PCOS, autoimmune disorders, so that we can empower each other to advocate for ourselves at the doctors and feel less isolated and ashamed. So our mission is really to teach women what is self-advocacy um, by using our, our framework, the advocacy framework that um, we've built. Um, we really, and, and again, this is born out of my own experience, but we want to help the next woman at the beginning of her health journey with a chronic female condition, find the path of least resistance, mm -hmm. right? Um, let's learn from each other to be able to um, get a woman from point A to point B without having to go through point C, D, E, F, whatever. Um, so that's oh. our mission. And I I did have to go through that. So I um, I was diagnosed with fibroids uh, in my early 20s, early to mid 20s. So you were on um, birth control when you found this. I was on birth control. Yes. And it was accidental. So I was going in. I, I at that point knew that I had the septum because I was diagnosed with the septum at 21, right after graduating school, uh, college. And that was also accidental. I went to my first OBGYN um, for a pap smear and they were like, hey, you got a septum. And I was like, what? What is that? I was quite literally shooed out of the room. So I was left thinking, I have an STD. I have a growth that may be cancerous. Like all the things in my head, because again, when we talk about the shame, like there's no room for it to be anything that could be something that you're born with, right? Like yeah. it was just immediately shame. Like, how did I grow this? How did I have this? And, you know, the unfortunate part was that the doctor did not help me understand what it was. Um, so I was fortunate that I had a coworker at the time who was dealing with her own gynecological issues. She was older than me and referred me to Columbia doctors. So I started my journey with Columbia doctors. I'm based in New York. Um, to be able to understand, you know, what the septum was. So in order to be able to fully diagnose it, you need to do what they call a transvaginal ultrasound. So that yep. was diagnosed. I went in to do that and we diagnosed that I had a vaginal septum. Um, in order to understand whether, because that was their bigger concern, like, is this a complete septum? Does it go through her cervix, through the uterus? Wow. I would need to go in to do an MRI. So at the time, what I had understood from the septum was unless I was having excruci excruciatingly painful sex or that it was extremely bothersome in any way, it was not something that was like urgent. It would become urgent to uh, fully understand when I was ready to try and conceive. Um, because if there is a complete septum, um, often most women may miscarry because a baby is obstructed from being able to develop in the uterus. Got it. So the timeline of things for me, I'm in my early 20s, was not now. <laughs> like, that's not, I just graduated. Um, I'm, I'm not thinking about having children anytime soon. Um, you know, I'll come back and see you another time. Totally. Um, and, you know, going back to talking about our, our mothers being advocates, um, she really helped me try and understand and place a timeline around this, right? Like for her, because I also had a good doc, good OBGYN at the time who did say like, totally fine. Just know that when, when you are thinking about family planning, you may want to take care of, 
of this, having potentially having surgery if you need to, um, a couple years before, because you will have some downtime before you can try and conceive. And if that's something that you really want, that downtime may be really hard to go through, right? Mm. Um, which I thought was really good advice. Totally. So not, you know, and it was talking to me less from a medical sense and more from like life, right? Totally. Like, how do you think about your life? Um, and so by my late, mid to late 20s, I decided to go back in and be like, okay, you know what? Let's go take care of this. I have a stable job. I have insurance. You know, those are other things to factor into it. Absolutely. Uh, and I started running the tests. So I got the MRI and it was confirmed that I had a complete septum and that they found a fibroid. Wow. So at the time I had no symptoms for the fibroid. It was kind of one of those things like, okay, it's there. And the surgeon um, still at Columbia uh, doctors that I was going to work with was like, we can remove the septum and I will also take off, take out the fibroid as well. And for those who haven't, for, I, I feel like I've heard the term, but for anyone who hasn't heard the term fibroid, can you explain that for us? Yeah. Um, again, not a doctor here. Um, but the way that it's been explained to me is that it's, it's a benign growth, right? Um, they often grow in your, your uterus, um, they talk about it as a benign tumor. I really hate the word tumor, but that is technically what it is. Um, and it's it's basically what they call fibrous tissue, right? Okay. It's tissue that um, often grows in your uterus. And it's interesting because never really understood what the uterus meant. I just like assumed it was like where I would like where I have my periods and where I baby get where I carry baby, right? Yep. Um, but it is actually, you know, it's it's effectively a cavity but there's, you know, a wall around it. And what I have started to understand more about fibroids, and honestly, this isn't until the last couple of years that I've understood it more because unfortunately I've grown more fibroids. Um, the fibroids can grow really anywhere. So they can grow inside the lining that is basically the wall of the fibroid. It can grow outside your uterus, but on, you know, kind of like attached to it. Okay. And it can grow inside of it as in like, you know, coming out of into the cavity. So there's a lot of different positions that a fibroid can grow. Um, again, it's this benign tumor, this fibrous tissue that develops. Um, and I've also learned from experience that depending on where they grow will cause you different symptoms. Um, gotcha. So, but again, I will reiterate that a lot of that I did not learn through my doctors. So that, um, that's where I was going to yeah, go because yeah. you explained that when you met this doctor at 21, who found the septum, they kind of laid out for you this general timeline, talking to you human to human, informed you enough to make your own decision. You decide at a later, more grounded time in your life with job insurance, yada, yada, to like, let's look back into this. They find the fibroid. And then what happens, because one thing that we also have in common is, well, I haven't done it yet, but this, this journey of freezing your eggs as a part mm -hmm. of the fertility journey. I had had the calling for the listeners who don't know, or any new listeners to freeze my eggs actually while I was pregnant, because even though I had gotten pregnant first try with my son, I had this intuition that 30 year old eggs, which he was 30 when I was born would be better than later. And I just had this suspicion that my postpartum may not go as I planned mm. and I still haven't done it. It's on the docket actually for 2024. Um, another story for another time, but 
when and how did you start feeling like you really had to activate your inner advocate on this journey? Yeah. Um, what a, like such a, it's actually a hard question because, um, the freezing my eggs became a decision that coexisted with my women's health issues and my career plans. Um, so I, I would say that no one told me to freeze my eggs. Like none of my doctors told me to freeze my eggs. Um, it, no one even put it on the, on the options. No one put it on the table. And the reason for that is fibroids itself don't necessarily. And again, I am not a doctor, but from what I have understood and what I have also later on been told by doctors, they don't impact your necessarily your ability to conceive. However, they do impact depending on, um, you know, if they become too large, again, their placement, their symptoms, your ability to carry a baby to term. So it is kind of under fertility in general, because obviously carrying a baby to term is still your fertility. But when it comes to being able to conceive, right, and, and creating a fetus, fibroids don't necessarily interfere with that. Um, oh, in that sense. So the doctors never came up, came to me about that. Right. Um, and since I was not telling them I had plans to get pregnant anytime soon, doctors oftentimes, you know, they, they treat the issue at hand. Um, I would say that most of my doctors, the way they've approached me is like, okay, we're trying to get, you know, we're, we're trying to just treat this and rarely do they start thinking, okay, what are your plans beyond that? Right. Um, which, you know, I understand why as doctors, obviously they only have, so they have limited amount of time to be able to talk to you about everything. Um, but I also think that sometimes it is a bit of a disservice, um, in terms of if you're going to have these recurring conditions, right. Which is why, you know, I've built my Advo because these are ongoing conversations. These are going to keep coming. I mean, they've come up for me again, right. In the span of five years, I've grown more, um, you know, and now that I am at a place where in the future I do plan to conceive, um, you know, I'm glad that I started actually thinking about things yeah. in my twenties, because I do have to plan those things according to my career, my jobs, my insurance, you know, will I have a child with a partner or without a partner? Those become life and financial decisions because of, you know, the healthcare system we have in the States that you have to take into consideration. So, um, freezing my eggs, just to go back to your initial question, actually became something after I had my first surgery for, um, to remove the first fibroid and to remove, um, the septum. I told myself, okay, I've just dealt through this. And at the time I was 27 I asked myself, do I see myself having children in the next two, three years? And I just didn't, whether I was going to be with a partner or not. I I didn't see myself being at a place where I was going to have children. And even though it was not brought up to me that carrying a baby to term may be something to, you know, be aware of when you have fibroids, et cetera, or fertility in general, it was something in the back of my mind, right? I think it was a little bit like, okay, well, things go wrong and it takes a while. Like, does that leave me in a situation where I'm, I'm going to be much older and et cetera. So I decided to, that, you know, I would 
freeze my eggs uh, by the time I was 30. That was sort of an, an idea that got planted after surgery around 27 and something that I wanted to realize and to save up for, honestly, um, by the time I was 30. Wow. And I think like, it's just so, it's reminding me of motherhood actually, because I think about the mental tabs I have open on a daily basis as a mom. It's like, there's myself, right. And my own routine and my own health and my own stuff. But then there's like this whole massive, it's like a different computer of tabs full of my son, Declan, and then like my career and my job. And it's like, I'm visualizing you with like this massive question of your future children and fertility and all that, your own health and fibroids. Plus you're just like a young woman trying to like- Trying to live life. life <laughs> like, right? like, I'm just trying and to live like, life. <laughs> I feel like it, uh, when you do have children, you're gonna be like, this is like more of the same. Like it's, I've, I've already been, I've been ready for this because it's just such a massive undertaking and everything you've been through. And I think- it's, I'm so grateful to be doing this episode with you because there are so many considerations that I don't think a lot of people, uh, especially who are career driven, think about because our, our parents' generation, if you're, you know, between let's call it 28 to 35, I would say like millennials, younger millennials, like our parents all, at least from my, I guess not everybody, but a lot of them could get pregnant. The fertility rates were better. Let's just say that. And now, like I was looking the other day at some fertility stats and like, there's so many more toxins and someone literally said like fertility is a luxury and it's like, you don't know necessarily what's in your air or your water until you, like I've been digging into this year on my fertility, secondary infertility journey. Uh, but there's this, this one thing that we can do in our twenties, which is preserve better egg quality because once you hit 30, your egg quality very, very drastically goes down. And then the amount of eggs in reserve goes down. And I think that that's something that like my doctors never told me about. Mm. I, if I hadn't listened to podcasts and then this year sat face to face with an IVF doctor, I wouldn't know. And right. a lot of us are there, especially in our cultural zeitgeist with our um, financial situations and how expensive it is to be a human. Like a lot of people aren't having kids right at 30 or before 30. Yeah. And so these are real life um, decisions. So you move through at 27, having major surgery. How soon after did you do the egg freezing? And can you give us a highlight of just things to think about if you are going to undergo that? Because it is something that I may be going through this totally. year. And I know a lot of our listeners totally. are as well. Totally. Um, so I had major surgery to remove the septum and the fibroid at 27. I went through my first round of egg freezing um, right before my 30th birthday. So at 29, okay. um, I will say um, one of the things that irks me about certain things I listen around women's health is when, when we are too, like, you have to do this, you have to do that. And that's something that I've realized also with our, like, the general conversation around egg freezing, like at the end of the day, it's not whether you, sh you have to freeze your eggs at a, by a certain time or you should do it. And otherwise you're, you know, it's going to be a, sh I sh you, you know, you should have known situation. Like it's a very personal decision. Um, and I think at the end of the day, it's about being educated enough to get to that decision, whether you want to do it or whether you decide not to do it, to be comfortable with it. And if you change your mind, that's also okay. Yeah. We have a lot of stats in front of us that 
you know, you're just talking about fertility, but the reality is we're having, we women in the U S we're having women later, but we're having women, we're having children later. Yeah. Um, the average age right now to have children is 30 years old. That's much later than our parents. Um, and, and unfortunately biology does show that like egg quality decreases over time. Yeah. Um, and that's okay. Like, this isn't to say like, oh, well, everyone should be having babies earlier, et cetera. There's a lot of reasons why we are having babies yeah. earlier, right? And and good reasons for that too, um, for ourselves. Um, and so I, I do think though, however, that that's where I struggle with. It's, you know, we have society telling us having these rose tinted glasses around what pregnancy is, what having a baby is, like, I get, I really struggle with, you know, when I'm having conversations with people and often people who are older than me and I say, you know, my partner and I are concerned about these things and we have a lot of conversations around how many children we want and when we want them, et cetera. And, you know, it starts sorts of sort of gets dismissed as like, well, well, you guys will figure it out. Like no one's ready to have a child, but you just figure it out. It annoys me because I'm like, I just don't think that that's necessarily as true anymore like yeah. it of course you do you know figure it out but like it's a lot more difficult and in a way a lot more sacrifices than it was maybe even 10 years ago mm-hmm. um and so there's this connotation and then there's also this idea that like whoa well don't talk about egg freezing don't talk about fertility through any of your 20s like you know like be completely in the dark until you've got this like five-year window when you're trying to get pregnant you know and it's like I think that's crazy like why and and I'm I'm you know I would say I'm guilty of this when I was told that I had the septum and that you know went to plan for the surgery which are like very rational ways to think about it when I was like in my early 20s I was like why are you talking to me about having children I literally just graduated I want to party all day I want to like spend my money I want to have yeah And which was like, obviously, totally normal to feel, but this weird visceral reaction to being to having to plan for children, I think is really imposed on us by society. It's like, oh, well, you have to be this like young thing in your early 20s, and then suddenly be ready to conceive when you want to have a baby that that is like, so not the way life works. (laughs) Yeah. Being open to talking about fertility, family planning, you know, whatever that looks like. It doesn't, for some people, it means not necessarily with a partner in throughout your twenties. I I do think that that's part of the conversation, right? Like, Mm -hmm. let's have a conversation um, so that you feel like you can make those decisions. And um, so, yeah, so for me, it happened when I, I made a big decision of wanting to freeze my eggs after my surgery in consideration with what I had just been through, but honestly, more because of my career, you know, and, and also how I felt, I was like, will I be ready? Do I think in my head that mentally with partner or not, that I will be ready to have a child. And I just, I didn't see myself there. And when I got to 29, I still didn't see myself there. So it, mm-hmm. my mind made a lot of sense to go through with egg freezing and I had saved up for it, which I will also say, like, not everyone has the privilege to be able to egg freeze. It is expensive. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, had really good insurance, but I still, and I'll say it out here, like my first round cost me $12,000 approximately. Wow. Like 
in New York City. So that that is a reality. That is a reality of also, you know, um, going through the process. It's you you speak from such a place of empowerment because I think it's taking your power into your hands and making executive decisions about your own life to give yourself options. And I think more women speaking to just the ethos of my advo in general and why you make such a great founder, it's like you are you are embodying that which is being empowered and and knowing what your options are and 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 really commanding your reality based on what you want it to look like. And so I believe that uh, our babies, our businesses are also babies. <laughs> our babies, <I> <laughs> do. Our, babies. <laughs> our business babies. They really are these things. And I actually had a moment with myself the other day where I'm like, wow, the last three months of my life were absolute hell and felt so disorienting and chaotic and yada yada. And I was like, oh, I launched a product. And then there were three months of chaos. I'm like, that is the exact same experience I had postpartum with a real Mm -hmm. human baby. Wow. Actually nuts. And I'm like, and also very normal because you're now coexisting with this real life thing that's living, breathing, operating in the world. Um, And so I would love for you to just share, I know we don't have a ton of time left, but where, when, when you decided to officially plunge into building my Advo, because you were moving through egg freezing, you had had a surgery, like you have all these other considerations you've so vulnerably shared with us and starting something is no, uh, it's, it's not for the faint of heart. No, I, uh, you know, we're, we're still in it right now. Um, it really did come out of my experience, uh, with surgery in 2019. Okay. A, A big part of it was because I felt really alone. Like I, I was again, lucky enough that I, have supportive family that flew out from California to take care of me but no one in my family that I was close to experienced fibroids and a septum so just mentally it felt very isolating and I certainly didn't know anyone my age that really had gone through it in their late 20s and so I started just speaking about it a little bit more to my girlfriends and to and to co-workers and you know, I think that's where it was still really hush hush. And people were like, oh, actually, like I do know one of one of my friends of friends, like they're going through this. And that's when I realized we're so many more women experience certainly chronic female conditions than we realize, but we're all living them in silos because there is this pressure, like kind of, you know, full circle back to our periods of keep it hush hush, mm-hmm. even though this is happening to about 50% of the population. And when we think about fibroids, endometriosis, PCOS, like we're often told like, oh, only a limited amount of women experience it. I mean, it's actually a a lot more. I mean, the stats, at least for fibroids have come out that 80% of women are going to have fibroids by the time they're, um, I believe 50 or 60. So again, it's the same idea as like, oh, let's keep this hush hush. There's taboo around it. There's shame around it. But like, it's really difficult to be going through these massive medical events, not just because they're traumatic from like a physical health, mental perspective, but also because they're, they're a critical break in your regular life, right? Mm-hmm. Like I, for surgery, I was out for at least a week. And I know women who are part of our community who've had to take almost six months out because surgeries were so not just for fibroids, but for endometriosis or other conditions were 
so rough recovering. So that is really where my advo came from. It was this need to connect and in a way validate that like, I'm not, I am not the only one going through this, right? Like this is, I'm not the only one going through this. And I'm also want to know next time I have to deal with this, maybe I can go about it in a different way. Maybe I can give myself a little bit more respite somehow if I know this tip, this advice, et cetera. Wow. And so talk to us about like what you are gearing up for in 2024. Um, yeah. I feel like really good, big energy for my audience. Yes, definitely. So uh, we are going to make our community um, larger and and more public actually will be um, able, oh. will be able to join um, the community and learn from each other. Um, we're keeping things hyper local because we've realized that uh, most women, if they're trying to learn from each other, they want to be in the same city, right? Like what yeah. doctors are you seeing? What's this, et cetera. So we're really working on creating these different communities um, on a city basis. Okay. Um, the larger thing that we're um, going to be rolling out, which we're really excited about is um, what we call our peer-to-peer -peer advocacy. So you'll be able to match with one of our peer advocates if you're going through something just to be able again to know someone who's around your age maybe doing something similar you're doing at work in your city to have someone to talk to you about it to even mm -hmm. just introduce you to how to go about a diagnosis how to go about a procedure how to prep for it how to recover etc so um big things coming um a lot of different ways to be able to interact with and engage with other women who are just like you Wow. I'm so excited. And before we close out, I just like for people to hear, it'll all be in the show notes as it always is, but hear about where they can find you and where you want to be found. Absolutely. So we have a presence on Instagram. Um, you can follow us at, at hello, my advo. Um, and you'll also find a link in bio there to sign up for our newsletter. Um, that's published monthly. Amazing. Thank you so much, Esther. Like I just, we have such paralleled and yet different content, but the context of our journeys is so similar. And I'm so grateful that you're doing this work in the world because I know I have needed it and so many other women who do. So glad love to it. it. Love it. I'm, I love these conversations we have Garrett. Um, and I'm, I'm really excited for our next one too. Yay. More to come. Thanks guys. Bye.